0: Welcome back, this is where we are. Apologies for the painfully long delay. A lot of things came up and usually when things come up, they come up all at the same time. This is simply the story of life and I'm sure a lot can relate. For this episode, we have Sai Villafuerte. I won't get into details of who she is but she's definitely one of the brightest people I've ever met. This episode is so deep that we had to cut it into two episodes. But rest assured, these are worth it from start to finish. Help podcast grow and be discoverable by giving us a 5-star rating and review through the Apple Podcast app. This is the best way for us to dig ourselves out into the world. Also, you can listen to us finally on Spotify. Also, we'd love to have you as our patron at patreon.com slash where we are. We really need all the help that we can get. Thank you very much for sticking around to this very point. We will keep this rolling and you know that. I hope you enjoyed this episode.
1: Episode 7. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay, episode 7. So I checked our uh, Spotify. Uh, Because you checked. Yeah. And um, we have a a special guest for today because all our guests are Are special. special. (laughs) That's what we say always. Without further ado, we'd like to introduce um, Isai.
2: What's up?
1: Thank you very much
0: for being on our podcast, our very, very humble podcast. But rest assured, we always end this, not on a light note, but we always learn something after every episode. Yeah, so um, first things first, Um, what do you do?
2: Um, I'm an MPhil candidate from the University of Oxford at the Department of International Development. Um, I'm currently in the Philippines researching um, the impact of the internet on value-creating activities um, in the Philippine film industry. Um, So I'm here doing research on that, doing some field work, conducting some interviews. Um, Aside from that, I am a freelance writer uh, for numerous publications like the Huffington Post, um, in the Philippines, Purveyor, uh, Bike Vibe from Norway, um, Intern Magazine from the UK, and I'm also a freelance photographer as well. So I guess I combine um, words and photography whenever I can.
0: That's an outstanding um, background that... I I wish I could say the same of myself, but I have a very boring life.
1: Likewise,
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, like, I don't know. It's, it's. See, it's it's. Um, what I find with at least in my experience, at least, and this could be a really interesting topic of conversation, which is, um, the more I do. Uh, uh, these things like my interests, pursue my interests. Yeah. Um, I'm increasingly finding the, um, s- the syndrome, imposter syndrome, to be more prevalent, which is something that I never really um, understood when people would talk about it.
0: Sorry, just for the clarity of uh, viewers, what is uh, the imposter syndrome?
2: So imposter syndrome is not really a syndrome. It's not a mental illness or it's not a health condition. But it's usually experienced by people that are probably really successful or have done a lot in their lives. And um, it's the increasing feeling that um, you will be called out to be a fraud or that you're a fake and that um, a feeling that you can't live up to the expectations that people give you. Um, it sounds really, it might be arrogant for me to say that, but a lot of, if you look at Emma Watson, Tom Hanks, they've um, vocally discussed these topics. Um, and it's a really weird feeling. Um, the more I want to do things, the more I want to pursue them. But the m- increasing feeling I have of being called out a fraud oh is, is even becoming if, more apparent.
0: Of course, this is even if you're actually putting out good work. Yeah. And it's just because that, because of the stature that your work projects, it actually calls more um what do you call this it calls more pressure sure. from yourself that you have to keep up with what is actually expected Of course and it you know expectations are really more than what is required, even for most of the things in the world,
2: yeah, and I think it has a lot to do with um I guess those expectations, at least for me, is tied to like always wanting to create something new. Um, I, I consider myself as a creative person. I like the creative arts. Um, in, in my research the people ask me I do development studies and people ask me like oh what does what does um, creativity have to do with development so when I when I explain what development studies <laughs> is I usually tell them oh it's how countries develop usually they confuse it with child development or architectural development or property development but in the most crude and simple way it's um how countries develop so how does creativity have anything to do with development and I feel that you know in 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 countries like the Philippines where um, creativity or the arts is not as prioritized, um, I, I think it's still equally important because it's at the root of innovation, it's at the root of technology and creative thinking and all these aspects, entrepreneurship. But, you know, again, tying it back to imposter syndrome and expectations, that having to constantly create something eventually you feel that you've exhausted all your resources, you've exhausted all your inspiration, and that's when, that's the, that's when you start feeling like people will catch you out as a fraud or a fake. And I think that's where it stems from, and it's a really weird feeling.
1: I, um let me ask. A few years ago, you were uh, doing ice skating, right? Competitively. What, when you transitioned from from that sport to your um interests and uh passion uh was it a tough decision or you felt that at that time it just felt right to um leave that arena
2: um i was figure skating um from when i was 8 years old and Damn. yeah and i stopped when i was around 17 and i was that was basically uh, like, figure skating basically occupied most of my time between I was eight years old yeah, until I was 17. Yeah, that's a
0: considerable career time.
2: Yeah, and um, I guess when you're young, um, my well, I guess when I was young, my parents just um, put me into all these sports hoping that I could, um, become consumed by them or that I'd like them. So growing up doing figure skating just felt really natural because that's what kids do. They, um, go into something, um, and they'll just keep doing it. Like it's, it's kind of not, not senseless or mindless, but it's, it's like an automatic. And, um, I guess transitioning into what I do now from figure skating was just a stage of maturity and feeling like I needed to do something else now because i did have a choice to stay in figure skating but there were so many factors that um kept me from staying which is um i mean in the philippines uh figure skaters aren't supported by the government um and that was largely self-funded which I'm, i'm so grateful for but i'm one of the lucky ones and i guess um i also had a I had a choice between um, staying in figure skating and doing it full time because you don't just like do it um, half heartedly, either do it all or don't do it at all. And at the peak of my career, actually, I was uh, I trained in Moscow um, with the. world champion in the 90s her name's maria burtiskaya if you want to look her up um, and i trained under her for a month in moscow and after the training camp which was 12 hours a day six times a week one hour break um, i was given a choice whether to stay train under her and um compete for sochi in the yeah. olympics or or not do it so and but that meant me having to give up my studies. So, give I up guess more than
0: that, I'm sure. Like sorry? Ju- not just the studies, but a lot oh, more yeah. things.
2: Yeah, I'd be giving up. I guess growing up yeah. and having that like sense of real life. Um, so I guess that's a chapter of my life which I've comfortably let go, and I mm. can look at with memories. So I don't think it was a difficult transition. I would say.
0: Yeah, as long as you don't uh as long as when you make a decision you're really well everybody isn't sure about most of the things that they that they decide upon that's why like people think that faith is only religious but for the most part faith is everywhere you have faith that the sun will rise tomorrow that the earth the earth will not end all of these things you we have faith that your plane will not crash when you come back home all of these things are assumptions and you, for anybody, for anything to actually progress, there has to be that leap of faith. But the important thing is that you are not sure of the outcome, but you are sure
1: that you are ready to face the consequences of your actions. Well, life is certainly full of um, uncertainties. This is why um, as, uh, Migs uh, said uh, even in the previous um, episodes, Yeah, faith is just not tied to religion. Faith is something that's very uh, human and it connects to us taking bold risks.
0: Yeah, and um, I don't know if this is just out of pure luck, but I strongly believe that there are people who are good at taking risks and they are usually the people who are most successful. They don't necessarily have to calculate it, but it's... It's an intuitive intelligence that not a lot of people have. Um, For example, um, some people are just so out of touch with their intuition to the point that they do not realize how things work, not in the strict sense, but more of the status quo. For example, um, you have people who have been spoiled to the point that they think that everything can be bought by money. When you come into contact with these people, they're usually not likable because they're so out of touch with sensing other people's feelings, with understanding the, uh, not to sound so high, but like the collective unconscious. You have these people who have been so artificially stimulated that their sense of the
1: world is so skewed. And that's what's dangerous. I also think I, I also wouldn't want to romanticize um, risk taking in the sen- in a ideal sense because yeah. some people just take risks for the sake of risks without calculating the consequences of their actions. I guess it goes yeah. with you have to everything has to come in balance. I guess to the point that they're wasting time and also effort energies.
2: Um it's interesting because this idea of almost taking risk and um kind of the collective unconscious kind of uh what is it called it ring it it rings true it um it's a thought that's close to home to me because I would say that maybe um a few years ago I was a completely different person as well um in a way, I was also quite i would consider my six like myself six years ago as was quite artificial or quite um out of touch if I could describe to you who I was I'll give you a gist and probably a lot of the listeners here will who know me very well will, un- will understand um or will be reminded of what the kind of person that I was way. and I'm not afraid of like admitting this but it's it's a it's an interesting transformation but you know, I wasn't as studious. I used to party a lot, and in Manila, this this could this is so easily um, retained. It's so easy to get sucked into this. I used to party a lot. Didn't care about grades. Um, I I had a fashion blog, and you know that just that alone can give you a sense of what kind of person I was. My ultimate. Goal was to become like Anna Wintour and to become the creative director of Vogue, and I constantly wanted to have the newest clothes, the uh, the newest shoes, um, the newest phone, and this all changed actually when I came to um, when I transferred to the UK to pursue my studies, and what changed me I think was taking up media studies for my a level um a level is basically the last two years of high school in the uk okay so it's kind of like ib but instead of taking a wealth of subjects you would take four subjects that you would choose on your own so for me i took up english language and literature media studies and photography and i moved because i knew what i wanted to do i knew that i wasn't going to do well in ib in the philippines so um it was a waste of time for me to stay and know that I was going to fail. But I was still the same person. I moved to the UK wanting to do fashion. I was mm-hmm. re- really excited to go to London Fashion Week and to see all those, um, like, clothing brands that I wouldn't see in the Philippines. Sure. But when I took media studies, and my professor was so, like... He was the first kind of teacher that I had that I would consider, like, a real teacher. Like, there, And that's I think that's very rare in... Um, in education where you you have someone in your mind that you really look up to that has taught you and he was basically the first person to introduce to me the idea at age 17 that you know um that every everything in the news don't believe it it's it's fabricated it's biased and it's it runs on on sound bites and and that made me that kind of crushed my reality because it made me realize why I love fashion and why I love all these like really superficial things. And it made me feel like I was living a lie, you know? And, um, and from there I started to have a really deep interest in why I believed those things. My ignorance to this so-called collective unconscious, um, it lifted the veil to me in, in a really interesting way. And so in a way, that was a mental risk for me, and it's funny to see people, as you say, that are ignorant to these things. What what is under the veil? And I've learned, I, I guess, because of my experience, to just leave them be. I, maybe they maybe they will or won't have their own time, but I think it takes. Such a mental risk to change yourself and to realize that for yourself um, and to decide for yourself that I'm going to think this way. Um, and I try not to judge people. I really try not to. And obviously, I, feel, I fall victim to that. But that's something that I realized that not a lot of people are, for the lack of a better word, awake. And I think it takes a lot of effort, internal effort at least.
0: Yeah, I'd actually go farther and like say not a lot of people are strong enough for it and this is not because like people are weak but it takes a lot of courage for you to accept things in general like a lot of things people are in denial of them not because that it's unfabulous or something but it's more of in the most common sense it's painful it's hard to comprehend and anything that's hard to comprehend is immediately seen as hostile or something that's dangerous. It's
1: a mental gag reflex, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, exactly. And especially here, criticism is taken um, differently in the sense that, as you said, it's Actually, thinking.
0: thinking. Thinking is taken um, when you're... That's why we have so much terms here in our Filipino culture that when you're trying to explain something, you ha- you're damning alam. If you're trying to, like, give something valuable, what's going to be said is, You know, it's like when you're trying to become creative, when you're trying to give value to the world, the only thing that is said of you is that, Okay, you're snooty because you know things. So now you're smarter than me. Is that it? So there's this knee-jerk reaction against any type of Value. I wouldn't even say it's intellectualism because it's not that deep. Like you're just adding simple value. You're saying to people, um, try to think in somebody else's shoes. That's not something deep. It should it shouldn't be deep. It should never be deep. That's just being aware of other people's feelings. But then you'd have people know, okay, you're smarter than me, have it your way. You're woke, whatever.
1: I think there's a very non-confrontational culture here, essentially. And um, I I, think- I would
0: say that it's, not, it's non-confrontational in terms of the actual content, but the reactions are definitely, definitely confrontational. Well, like yeah. you'd be spoken in your face that like being smart is actually like equated to being a hipster. The culture of being reasonable, the culture of being aware of things, is like a hipster culture. Like, okay, you're in that fad. We're, so, we're all supposed to be like just normal, stupid human beings, but you chose to be otherwise. Okay, have it your way. But
1: I mean, the the concept of saving face—that's a big deal here. So I think, in terms of um getting into arguments, people prefer not to do it in front of a lot of people. It tends to be one on one.
0: And it also well. I think it, it, it makes the most impact when it comes to how, how people actually communicate because since, for example, I would never bother explaining things to people that I know will just say, will just dismiss me and say that, okay, you know, too much. Or like, you belong to this camp. Like, okay, you're this blank person. You fall to this group. So now, the, of course, the, my reaction would be: okay, I'll just profile people who I think will never listen to me. I'll never talk to them again, and they'll just and then I'll just have similar people like us and talk to you my, instead. So this is what happens: like in hope of giving value to the world, people are blocking. People are blocking it to the point that you sometimes feel no longer interested in, like, sharing value. And this value becomes an ivory tower. Like, because only those who create value can understand value.
1: Like-minded
0: people. Like-minded people. The value only circulates to a few select people. And it never goes out. But it's such a big problem because it it doesn't want to be absorbed by people outside. So it's it's very hard to reconcile how to do things. Should I what is the right amount of giving out and what is the right amount of keeping it first? And, you know.
2: I have a... And I want to build on top of this non-confrontational attitude that is so characteristic in the Philippines. I think it's an Asian thing, to be fair. But I had a conversation with a friend about this. And it does, it's not even just about intellectual debates or conversations. It goes as far as um, being assertive. And... I fall victim to this as well. At least that's what I realized when I came to the UK, where British people, European people in general, are very assertive about what they want. For example, if you're in a restaurant, or no, better example, I, and this is an anecdote, I wanted to have uh, a picture printed in my studio. Um, and I was speaking to the printers about wanting it in a certain quality and because they do um because they do darkroom prints the the procedure of printing the photographs from film by the way is very kind of um difficult to match um it's not going to have the same it's not going to have the same quality as if you printed it digitally. So there's going to be imperfections. And when I got the print back, um, I wasn't quite happy with it, but I was quite happy to just say, oh, it's fine. Like, don't worry about it. Like, it's okay. Like, you know, you don't have to do it again. And then my boyfriend, who is from London, he told me, oh, you know, you, you have to tell them because this is customer service. They'll be happy to replace it for you if if you know if they want you to keep if they want to keep you as a customer and i'm like no but it's like just it's so um so much effort to do it like i can't be bothered like no be assertive like you're the customer you have to get what you want and if they can't provide you that service then you get your money back and it took so much effort for me to do that being the filipino i just wanted to be to do that bahala na attitude and in the end i got the print that i wanted actually no sorry i didn't get the print that I wanted and I got my Mm -hmm. money back. And I went to another uh, printing studio where they gave me the better quality prints. So in the end, that worked out. Another example is my friend was telling me a story about how she was at a party that she really didn't want to be in. But because she was scared of her friends giving her pressure to to not leave, like, oh, please stay. Come on, it's a birthday, whatever. She ended up staying until 6 a.m. and, you know, feeling really terrible in the morning. And that's because she was scared to kind of leave and face that pressure and that confrontation that she wasn't as assertive. So it's funny how this attitude um, permeates, not just in intellectual debate, but in everyday life, I would say.
0: Oh, I do agree. But I think there's a very thin line between being assertive and being over-assertive. And I would... I would like to say that it's the Filipino culture is not because it's um it has a deficiency in assertiveness, but it's more of an intuition let's say um a lot of people here in the Philippines, especially the middle class and those above the middle class, get pissed because of the smallest things that aren't necessarily of. Value for you to get pissed Petty Very petty things And these are usually directed At service crew So you'd have like The shittiest work environment Low wages And tired people And for some reason The person just forgot like A pack of ketchup Then someone would come rushing Why did you forget my ketchup? Then it would ru- it would obviously ruin that the 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 service crew's day, but that's just so shallow that you should people should learn to put themselves in other people's shoes, as I've said, and learn that sometimes we have to be assertive in the things that matter,
1: because for a lot of things Filipinos don't Filipinos don't assert themselves. That's true. Like if we want to achieve a desired result, then sometimes we have to be what you'd call enforced tough love. Or yeah. Whatever. Yeah. But also for
0: some things, we really can afford to become a little bit more gentle. Especially when you come to think about the day of the people who are who are ha- who are having a harder life. Mm. Quote unquote. So I think it that's why I think it's intuition. Because when you have good intuition, you have a good sense of feeling of how things are you know when to sense when people want you to leave and you also know when that person isn't feeling un- comfy like if you know that you're in a party and the person isn't feeling comfy it it's not because that you're not assertive hey i don't want this i'm going it's more of you know when when when, when a person is out of place you know when a person is feeling threatened you don't have to like you don't have to victimize people oh you're here because you can't you're weak, you can't say no to peer pressure. It goes both ways. It's more of I understand I don't want to to give peer pressure because I'm a human being and you're a human being.
1: So I think it goes both ways. I'm going back to um the the way we communicate, um I'm sure um Isai would get me on this and you. Um Me and Isai specifically came from um schools where Criticism is valued because. And, and taxes aren't paid, Joe.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just had to say that. Yeah.
1: And um, I think it's very. Um, the transition from leaving that kind of background to going back to, you know, the Philippine culture of uh, dealing with people um, can be quite frustrating um, based from my experience in business specifically. Like now, I have to constantly make adjustments about what I want to say. <laughs> the The problem is because of that, I don't meet the desired result that I was expecting. So it becomes a bit of a drag. Yeah. It takes time for you to try to exchange this idea to a person without being confrontational. Yeah. But at the same time, if you were to be fully assertive, you're, you're gonna sound like a dick. Yeah, to them. yeah. So to me that's frustrating and now I I I still struggle to balance those some um, ends out. One of my solutions for that
0: is try to work with younger people and I, I I this is as millennial as you can get but seriously I don't know if it's because of my age or well I I want to contend that it's because just younger people tend to be more intuitive that um, work environments with younger people usually are a lot better and easier to work with rather than like very, very stringent old companies with old rules and just that weight. The The air itself on companies with old people are so heavy.
2: I wonder how you overcome that though. Um, I... I, you know that saying where you're you always end up growing up like your parents, and I am very averse to the idea that I'm going to be as risk adverse as my parents, where any opinion or idea i'm 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 basically like fixed on my ideas and I'm not gonna listen to you. I genuinely feel that um at least in our generation there is going to there isn't going to be that but also the m- more i get older the more i see i guess some aspects of my life and my friends where they tend to carry on the characteristics of their parents and i find that something that that's something that i think about and that's something that you know i see when i deal with older people in the workplace um it might be different here but at least in the uk um, they're in the workplace. There tends to be this level playing field amongst everyone. You know, we're all equals. We're all in the same office. and But that's in my environment. I, I've worked a lot in editorial. I've worked a lot in, like, um, kind of, not youth groups, but, like, where people are between maybe um, 20s to 30s. And there's a level playing field, no matter w- whether you're a CEO of a company or if you're just helping out turning. But... Yeah, I wonder how you, how you do deal with that because you can't always work with young people and especially here. Um, I wonder how, what your tactics are for that. Well,
0: just to add, I think it's the West versus East style of business because of course, business in the Philippines is highly influenced by the Chinese method.
1: No, no. And business is very personal here, I, I would say.
0: Like for example, yeah. I do have a lot of Japanese clients and their sense of hierarchy is enormous like in every way possible just from getting inside of the room who's the first to sit down who's the first to pick up the fork everything who's the first to talk it's very very stringent who's gonna pour
1: the first drink
0: yeah it's that type of culture which enables sometimes like I'm sure there are cases that it could work like if you have an exemplary boss who's really really good and like You give that person the respect, he calls the shots, he makes good shots, that's good. But that's the same type of work environment which rewards loyalty and time of service rather than actual quality of work. So you'd have these bosses who have been working for like 10 to 15 years, very old Mm -hmm. head honcho, that doesn't really make, that doesn't really make good decisions, but you have to respect that person just because, okay, of am their I.
1: seniority.
0: And those are the same type of people usually that don't accept opinions from lower people because you know, you're just my slaves.
1: Um, I couldn't agree more, and I felt that kind of culture here when I was as, er- as early as five. Like when I <laughs> feel that something isn't right, the default argument that old people would say is respect your elders so but then it's only now that i understood that that kind of interaction and you know it's
0: about it should be like respect everyone and respect is not tantamount to not being able to suggest like sometimes especially the older people at least in our culture like forget that just because you have you want to speak out that you really feel that things are otherwise and you want them corrected, you want to give a suggestion. That doesn't mean that you're being disrespectful. That's like, I don't understand how that is rocket science to some people.
1: Respect is not tied to age.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I can't explain it because it's self-explanatory.
2: I want to build on this idea of the West versus East kind of models because I... I wrote a really interesting paper when I was in Oxford and I so my masters is 2 years and the first year is usually trying to cover a lot of like core subjects. Okay. So one of my modules was just basically key issues in development. Um, we have to write two essays and one of them is a book review, a 5000 word book review. And I did my book review on Max Weber's Protestant ethic of capital um, which is the spirit, the spirit of Capitalism, is okay. that what it's called? I've forgotten. But it's about, you know, the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. There you go. And um, the essay title was, Does Cultural Modernization Precede Institutional Modernization? So does it have to be that for a certain country to progress... Do they have to internalize certain cultures in order for their institutions to modernize as well? Or do the institutions have to go first and then the culture changes? So Max Weber argued that at the heart of capitalism was this idea of the Protestant ethic, where because you were frugal and that you saved and that you only (laughs) spent what was necessary, then... You know, you will be able to uh, invest your money into business. And because you were frugal, that money would go into business and, you know, your capital will regenerate. And you can see this in kind of conservative economics where fiscal policy, tight austerity measures, yeah. saving is really important. And I guess... um I don't know. How, what do you think about that? Does cultural modernization precede institutional modernization or is it the other way around? Because you could see it in the Philippines, being able to internalize those like, kind of Western economics into the Philippines. That, and obviously it's not going to be always contextual. But I don't know, there's this dogma and it's either one or the other. And I, I want to open up the debate to that.
0: East and, the, the divide between the East and West when it comes to culture and business culture definitely exists. but I think that the best types of business are holistic ones. So in any culture that the reason why even let's remove this from business, every culture debe- develops into the like the most humanistic cultures when they are usually well-rounded. And the less well-rounded a culture is, usually that's where things have problems. So, the only thing that I like about in, um, globalization, for example, is that cultures are integrated slowly. So, for example, the reason why I'm going to give two examples, like America versus Japan. Those are, for me, very, very polar opposite. Um, cultures. And when it comes to business, a lot of them are also polar opposites. But when you look at the global brands, let's go to Google, for example, usually their company policy, their business structure is very well-rounded because they have customers from all over the world. And it's not as if, okay, Google's policy for the West is this, Google's policy for the East is this. It's not like that. It's more of how can we adapt to humans in general because humans always have this common factor, this common consciousness that always appeals to us. It's being human. It's being, it's being kind. And it's also of- being, um, being able to adapt to change. Yeah. Being dynamic. Being dynamic. It's like, then again, I'm, co- I'm coming back to intuition, knowing how to feel. So when you remove feeling from any activity you do, you always get into trouble. So it's not, I'm not saying that you should just feel your way into everything, but I'm saying you should like give attention to your gut feel, give attention to your feelings, how you perceive things because they are valuable and they help make better decisions as opposed to you're just calculating everything. Everything is just numbers, figures, and data. That isn't, that isn't, that never works. It becomes a very sterile type of society and the best business 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 people are those who have the best business intuition it, it was never about making calculations every day having this smart AI to calculate whether I'm gonna pull stocks now or am I gonna add it's not about that everything is prediction but you have these good people who have the
1: very who are very in touch with the world you know what that's called basically empathy and as a business tool, empathy is such a big deal. Like people actually study empathy in business. And that's aka the fancy word for that is design thinking. It's basically when you try to understand the customer, you try to walk through what the customer does. So, um, in relation to um what you've been um saying, Migs, um yeah, definitely the best businesses are those that are quote-unquote, humanized in the sense that they get into the mind of the customer.
0: Not only the customer, but the mind of their own employees, I have to add. Yes, of course. Because of this day and age, we are so concerned about products and technology that we forget that the greatest capital is human capital. And if you have a good work environment, you have good products when you have good products you have happy customers so where does this stem from it stems from having good producers and that those are your people those are us that's why you have people who are alienated from their own product because they don't feel that they are worth, that they are useful they feel that they are robots the craftsmanship the attachment to items when we create something we are inevitably attached to it that's why sweatshops Almost always create depression When you have monotonous work It creates a very bleak relationship with your products Because you do not You are taken away from your child Quote-unquote
2: And this is why for me um, Creative industries are interesting And this is why I'm researching At the very root of it Creativity Because As I said, I think creativity should be a development agenda for developing countries. It's right to think that you want to solve poverty, that you want to secure food and water and all of this. I think it's important and there will be researchers for that. But I think in development studies, there aren't enough people thinking about creativity. Yes, you're talking about innovation. Yes, you're talking about technological innovation. But what's creativity? What's that kind of um, kind of that? Intuition that allows you to solve a problem, which is always changing. And for me, it, I think the creative industries is the pinnacle of that because these are not only artists who are connected with their work that are really passionate in a really abstract subjective way but they're also entrepreneurs they have to make money and they have to make money out of these like abstract ideas and they have to materialize it and that's that's present in every entrepreneur but you wouldn't consider people in the creative industry entrepreneurs at least traditionally (laughs) you wouldn't and I find that interesting and more so in film because and that's what i'm researching i'm looking at the philippine film industry and what's interesting about film it kind of follows the model of a man like any manufactured product so it has exactly it has a conceptualization stage, where you have an idea, you want to license it, you register your intellectual property, and then you manufacture it. And that's in production, where you start to film things based on the script, and you have a whole team working on this with different specializations, and then you fine-tune it, and then you have a massive marketing team, and then you distribute it. And that intellectual property, which is really abstract, which is intangible, is being sold everywhere. That's why Hollywood is is massive because they probably have amazing infrastructure to uh, sell their intellectual property which is movies. And just imagine if each developing country or let's take the example of the Philippines can have better infrastructure to uh, secure their intellectual property. You could use your own culture, your own traditions to share with the rest of the world and get your returns on it. And every creator, every producer will get the kind of um, break that they deserve. But in my research, at least, I feel that, well, what I'm discovering is that that infrastructure is largely not present. And the ability to be creative is largely unpresent as well.
0: People tend to forget that the pinnacle of human civilization is creativity. And for you to actually ignore development and creativity is basically ignoring the fundamental nature of humans. It's what sets us apart from the rest of the other (laughs) creatures. (laughs) That's exactly what sets us apart. And that is the reason why things develop. Because like past a certain point we've been obsessed with numbers, with automation, with very, very sterile calculations. But for every great invention the typical trope was always like, okay, I've done my calculations. I've been in the lab for 12 hours. Then I went to the shower. When I was showering, I've thought about, aha, this is what's Theory missing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's what Do it you is.
0: know why showers are reflective? Because they stimulate your intuition where in the rest of your day doesn't. Because people think that focus is concentration, but those are two different things. I'm gonna give eyesight as an example. When I focus on you, and I like deliberately focus on your face, if something pops out, I'm not gonna notice it. On the flip side, if I just look at the wall, stare blankly, I can see you, you, I can see a pillow there, I can see a TV, I can see everything. I'm not focusing on one thing, but I'm looking at the bigger picture. Right. That's what intuition is. And sometimes we have to take a step back because we've been so obsessed in this day and age. Social media is based on your focus. It's on your attention span. And the attention span only lasts for so long.
1: few seconds.
0: In the same way, I can. it's going to be hard for me to stare at you and focus at you for an extended period of time, but I can just stare blankly in the wall and watch something move continuously without having me to break that concentration. That is what concentration is. That's why showers are very meaningful because you have nothing to look at. It's like sensory
2: deprivation, a it's, form of
0: yeah. Because you don't, ha- you do not have anything that sim- stimulates your sight. So what are you? What are you left to do? You're left to think. That's why you have clarity of thought because your sight is deprived of any stimuli. You don't have to think. You just have to... You don't have to, like, focus. You just have to concentrate. You have to think.
2: The moral out of this is take more showers, I think. But...